Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we are recording our first post-dev intersection show. Yeah. After coming back from a very successful conference. That was, uh, that was weird. <laughs> it was weird, you know? Yeah, it was weird. But you guys had the first conference in person. I think we're... I'm, I'm sure there's some others, but I don't, I'm not going to presume first, but we're obviously very early. Of course, yeah. planning takes six months. So what are you going to do? Right. Yeah. Uh, and I think in December, I was kind of, uh, we have to make a best effort here, but I can't imagine we're going to be able to do this in person. And then as time went on, it became more and more feasible. So tell me the stats. How many people? What was the story? Uh, there were about 500 in person, although we had a non trivial number of no shows. You know, the, lots of folks that bought tickets last year and got carried forward show to show, some of them didn't appear. So, that was interesting from a food perspective and things. So, we'll see what happens there. Do you have to refund their tickets or can they well, come they, to the next we one? Haven't, we haven't been able to reach them, right? Oh. And so, we, we're, we're trying to figure that out. But that, that was an interesting problem. And we had a couple of hundred online. Yeah. Uh, and 75% of our speakers were in person and 25% of them remote. So we did the full hybrid thing, which right. I don't know if I'd ever do it like that again. I kind of think it's best to have, it, it's best to have speakers in person. Well, and you did it for a reason, right? I mean, you yeah, did yeah. it because we wanted to get together and some of us couldn't. And the ones that could really, really appreciated it, I think. Yeah, I think so too. It, it was a really positive room. Like, Everybody that was there was very excited to be there. You know, we did the, the, the colored sticker thing to sort of, if it's green, it's, I'm fine to approach. If it's yellow, uh, you know, just uh, happy to chat with you. And, it's, and if it's red, please stay back, you know. And, and so we were able to make it easy for folks to signal what their sort of status was. Generally, everyone was wearing masks in the common areas. The rooms themselves had were tabled and they were spaced properly. So you could sit and take your mask off there, like. And then the, every room was sanitized between sessions. Like, it was a lot of work to, yeah. to do all of those things. Right. And uh, as you can tell, I have some sort of friend that I picked up in Florida. Um, it's it sort of uh, reminds me of how I felt after I got COVID. But I did a rapid test when uh, I landed at the airport. It's mm -hmm. interesting. TF Green Airport in Providence. I went down to baggage claim. There's free rapid test right there. I went wow. right to the rapid test thing and did it, and I got my results, which were negative, before my bag came out. Wow. Okay. That's rapid. Isn't Plus, that cool? I would point out, you have had COVID and gotten over it and have been vaccinated as well. So, right. Because, <laughs> you know, for me as an organizer, my biggest fear now is the next two weeks that there's an outbreak of COVID from our show. Right. I don't think it's likely, but- you know, I, I'm going to be on pins and needles for the next two weeks. And I'm also in quarantine being back in Canada. Yeah, so that's right. You had I'm to, up. you had to lock yourself up for three days. No, no, I'm uh, two weeks. So two weeks. Uh, the, the trick coming back to Canada as a Canadian is either if you, you're required to quarantine for two weeks. And if you fly in, they put you in a hotel for a minimum of three days. But I came across on the road crossing, so I was able to go straight home. So I'm home now. And uh, they also gave me two COVID home-administered tests. Wow. Which I have to do on camera with a nurse. So I did the first one this morning. Hmm. And then that goes out by courier. And then on day eight, I'll do my second one. And as long as they're both negative, 
at the end of 14 days, I'm out of quarantine. That's good. But you're mostly in quarantine. That's your natural state, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> let's face well, it. Well, the, the one that kills me is not being able to walk the old dog, right? Like that, that hurts. So, um, but he's right. Uh, he's literally at my feet right now. So, he's not happy I was gone for 10 days and he's happier now that I'm here. Well, anyway, we could talk about COVID forever. Just, uh, yes. you know, know that you're going to hear probably a few of these Mr. Haney uh, <laughs> from me <laughs> recording from Bug Tussle. Um, but let's get started with a little segment we call Better Know a Framework. Awesome. <laughs> All right, man, what do you got? Well, as you know, Richard, I have mm -hmm. been uh, using this third-party open-source tool to generate um, SSL certificates or TLS certificates right. for my Azure properties. Let's Encrypt? Yeah, Let's Encrypt. Yeah. But it stopped working, and I don't know why. And you know what? Interesting. I hate that. I hate <laughs> relying on a third-party tool. You are obviously using it because you don't know how to do it yourself. Right. And then it breaks and gives you some weird error and there's nothing about it on the internets and you're screwed. So it turns out that you don't need any third party anything anymore to get a free managed certificate in Azure. Microsoft is giving them away. Oh, nice. As, as they should have from the beginning. Yes. Yes. It's so like we really want everyone to have secure websites. Why are we making cert so hard? Exactly. You know, you and I have been railing about this as many of our friends have for a long, long time. Sure. But anyway, that said, it's still easy. It was still easier than using AWS. Oh my God. Forget it. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody makes certs damn hard. Try setting up a certificate in IIS. Like none of it is trivial. You're right. And for good reason, you know, it has to be certified. But you know what? Microsoft's pretty certified as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, if, uh, so, so this is episode 1744. So if you go to 1744.pwop.me, you'll get this, uh, document at Microsoft's documents. The, uh, document is called Add a TLS SSL certificate in Azure App Service. And where I bring you to is, the section that's called create a free managed certificate nice. and boy howdy if it doesn't work great all right so let me read from the docs the free app service managed certificate is a turnkey solution for securing your custom dns name in app service it's a tls ssl service certificate that's fully managed by app service and renewed continuously and automatically in six month increments 45 days before expiration you create the certificate and bind it to a custom domain and let app service do the rest. Has some limitations. Doesn't support wildcard certificates. That's fine. If they're free, make as many as you need for every subdomain you want. That's right. Does not support usage as a client certificate by certificate thumbprint. A removal of certificate thumbprint is planned. It shouldn't have been in there in the first place. Is not exportable. Is not supported on app service environment. Is not supported with root domains that are integrated with Traffic Manager. If a certificate is for a CNAME mapped domain, the CNAME must be mapped directly to appname.azurewebsites.net. Hmm. So that's okay. Yeah, that's fine. Nothing is unreasonable. And it's, and it's issued, not a Let's Encrypt cert. It's DigiCert. It's DigiCert. So what's the difference, Richard? 
Oh, they're just different vendors of certificates, right? Okay. Like, that it means different people, they different organizations own the route. Like I would trust either one of them. DigiCert's one of the old guys too. They've been around a long time. And so it's let's encrypt. So but that comes down to root server requirements. Well, anyway, it's finally happened. Go get your free certs and stop paying hundreds of dollars a year for your other certificates. Yeah, that's good. As well it should be. About time. Thanks. Thanks, well Azure. Found. Seriously, By I can't I, I can't be unhappy. It's very no, good. No. It's the way it should be. Well, anyway, that's what I got today. Who's talking Excellent. to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off a show, 1620. This is from January of 2019 in the before times. <laughs> uh, when we talked to Rocky about .NET Standard. Yeah. And uh, and that was, of course, in the .NET Core 2, .NET 4.6, like when we were still doing all that battle, which I thought was kind of interesting looking at what we were talking about. Now we're living in a five era with six imminent just a few months away. And so this particular comment comes from Tony Drake. And admittedly, it's two years old now. Yep. And Tony says, I love this show, the highlight, and it does highlight the slight mess we've gotten into. Mm. I want to say as someone who has built a large app with CSLA, and I love it, now working with Core 2.2 with DLLs in Standard 2 and with 4.7.1, which can also use DLLs from Standard 2 as a web app with Angular 7. Mm. And with the UI hosted in Azure, and I'm just thinking through all those moving parts, Tony, like, holy man. <laughs> <laughs> and this comes, uh, he goes on to talk about himself a little bit. It's like, I come from 15 years as a PIC developer in the 1990s, and I learned SQL in .NET in 2005. So he made a big old jump. Okay, you got in, your in pedigree there. Yeah, no kidding. And it's, But he's also got, you know, years of .NET development now, too. Right. Right. And so I share in the stories we told because, you know, we're three old guys complaining about software. It's inevitable, right? <laughs> but it's a I, you, dude, I did a show on Windows with Paul Throt, and it's literally two old men complaining about Windows, right? Get off my lawn. Yeah, totally. We can't help ourselves now. It's sad. Uh, but it's amazing how much change we go through as software developers. And I would love to have a beer with you and Rocky and, uh, because I don't know that I have any real friends who know the pain we talk about in this weird business. Mm. Imagine if Bridge Reengineering redid their theories and practices every five years. I'm like, you know, Tony, they kind of do, actually. Yeah. Like, if you look at the arch architectural differences of bridges, and maybe not every five years, maybe it's ten. <laughs> but you look at the difference between concrete platform, steel truss, tension suspended, compression suspended. Sorry, I know too much about bridges. Uh, anyway, yeah. Yeah, well, you're right. The compression suspended bridge is sort of the the <laughs> the pinnacle of bridge architecture now, isn't it? Modern bridges. Yeah, absolutely. Modern bridges. The big concrete post that everything hangs off of. It's yep. magic. And I'm sure there's a bunch of bridge geeks out there that sit around and go, remember the good old days. Have you ever heard the Stuff You Should Know podcast with <laughs> yeah. Chuck and Josh? I'm sort of hooked on it. I, I think about .NET Rocks, except the topics are just like real life. You know, not, not, not Star Trek at all. Rocky's shaking his head and laughing. I know his <laughs> mic is muted. We'll get to him in a second, but it, it is really the .NET rocks for the rest of the world. It's a great podcast, That's stuff funny. you should know. And they did one on bridges. That's how yeah, I know so much. It's a great conversation. And yeah. Tony, I'm going to close up Tony's comment here because he really closes strong with this. If anything I got from this podcast, it's stay current. And I feel so smug that my current business solutions are 100% core 2.2. 
that was current in mm-hmm. January 2019. Yeah. And keeping up with the latest JavaScript frameworks and packages is the best way forward. One thing you forgot to mention is how hard it can be to relearn all of this old tech to keep it going. And that's true. You know, you have an app that you're still owning, but it's like a year behind in a bunch of stuff. You're really, where did this go? Where did that go? So it's good to stay right up to date. Getting a developer in who's never seen wind forms of WPF and while they know .NET, it's all too new. It's too hard to keep current. So keep up on the latest or at least the no more than the previous release is my rule. Keep current. Can't argue with there, Tony. True enough. And the, and the fact is, I think Microsoft is very intentionally iterating rapidly to encourage that behavior, that we have new versions steadily so that it's in our best interest to stay built with the latest stuff and deal with small incremental changes rather than the big jumps we used to deal with. Right. Do you remember the jump from 1.1 to 2? Oh, this is going to be an awesome show. I can tell. (laughs) It's all that pain. Anyway, Tony, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the Facebooks because we publish the show there. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. That's HTTPS colon backslash (laughs) colon slash slash Twitter.com. And uh, boy, let's bring on our old friend, Rocky Lotka. He's been sitting patiently with his mic muted and, and laughing along. I'm sure he wants to jump in here on at least one of the conversations we just had. And he has a new bio. I'm shocked. He does have a new bio. First of all, Rocky, what's the name of your company now? Yeah, well, I now work for uh, Cognizant SoftVision, who acquired Magenic uh, in February. Cognizant oh, Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's a uh, uh, soft so cognizant is is this massive company like almost 300,000 employees. Wow. And they have uh they acquired a company called Softvision a few years ago. Uh and Softvision is geared toward uh kind of high-end consulting, very very much like Magenic and Right. Uh, and so soft vision, I think is about 4,000 people or something. Magenic and, was up there uh, too, right? Like it's a pretty well, big we organization. We had, uh, 850 consultants when we were acquired in February. Okay. So, yeah, we, so not bad size. So are you now the CTO of the Magenic team at soft vision? What would you call your, your, uh, title? Yeah. Yeah. We're still in this transition period. Uh, anybody who's gone through a, corporate merger or acquisition Mm. knows that these things take months, years. (laughs) Yeah. You really, I, you know, I, every time I've been involved in a thing like this, it's like the first year is just figuring out what you got. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's really not your best interest to make many changes in that first year. You're just trying to take care of the customers as they are kind of think things functioning and study each other, get to know each other enough to say, how do we want to realign this? Yeah, absolutely. And so, so yes, I am, I'm the CTO of what we're now calling Magenic Studios, which is, is Magenic yeah, yeah. within the context of soft vision. So that's pretty good. And that may change, you know, to your point, Richard. You get some choices too about what you want to do. It's like you now are suddenly presented with a much larger organization and kind of what parts of the work you want are really interested in. Yeah. And, and that, you know, is, starting to become visible, uh, you know, as time goes on, uh, what kind of opportunities exist. And, and, and there are some pretty interesting ones, you know, areas where, uh, some of 
what I bring to the table, I think can really be applied very effectively inside the organization. Mm -hmm. And then also, you know, possibly some resources or capabilities coming from such a big organization that I didn't, couldn't easily tap into uh, with a smaller organization. So, yeah. Yeah. Powerful stuff. So uh, let's, let's get the get off my lawn stuff right out of the way first. Uh, Is there anything (laughs) compelling that you want to respond to in that uh, email that Richard read? Ah, well, well, yes, though, though, first I do want to point out that you're better know a framework. I recently had my let's encrypt cert quit working and, uh, had switched to the built in service, which I discovered by accident while trying to fix the let's encrypt deal. Exactly what happened and, to me. Uh, and, and I'm like, Oh, this is awesome. I'm so happy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and the, the clouds departed yeah, right? and the rays of light shone through. Well, because it was exactly what you were saying, where uh, I had grabbed a random, you know, some years ago, some some random uh, web job mm-hmm. that would create and renew the Let's Encrypt certs, and mm-hmm. it quit working. And rather than trying to troubleshoot or replace somebody's random web job, I, you know, able to just switch to a supported service. And so, yeah. but that... Happy day. That does tie right into the yeah, email. You know, my, my Let's Encrypt thing still works fine. So I'm just waiting. When's my turn for it to all go bad? Well, you probably have a di- different random web job. That's what it is. Possibly. I mean, you know, this was a implementation of Let's Encrypt that somebody put a, you know, a GitHub repo out for and showed you the steps to go through to, to make it work and everything. And you're probably, you probably did it yourself, you bastard. Mm, you probably, probably just did not. the whole thing. I probably copied yours, Carl. That's that's probably what I did. <laughs> Richard probably wrote it. You know, it's like <laughs> no, no, it's not true. No, no? this is true. Oh, okay. No, I I didn't pick a random though. I was very, you know, the the shepherding of open source projects, like looking at an open source project, like is this healthy? Mm. Like, is this something I want? Because ultimately, it was the Acme bot, which is the yeah. this open source project that that does this. But, uh, and I, but it, you know, you have to really assess those things too. Like, is well, this, I, I was is using this the Acme bot too, and it broke. So yours, obviously, uh, well, they like you better. Maybe it's a Canadian thing. Clearly. <laughs> this all does tie into that email though, because it, it comes back to the, you know, I, I set mine up and I bet you did too, Carl, years ago when Let's Encrypt first was available on Azure. And, uh, I haven't looked at it or touched it since ever at all. And actually so, mine wasn't set up long ago. Oh, and in fact, I tried to rebuild it using the exact same instructions and it failed again. So that's when I said, no, now, I assume mine just succumbed to bit rot. You know, if, if, if you, uh, don't, don't keep stuff current, it's, it's just, just like, uh, so many, uh, used cars or whatever, they get lot rot, right? That, yeah. It, it, Sit on the uh, sit on the sales lot long enough, they just everything quit working up. for no apparent reason. Yeah, well, it, true it, enough. it plays into our topic today, which is open source in the enterprise. And I imagine if you know, I was a Magenic customer, and you guys were using the Acme Bot uh, or Let's Encrypt for your customer for your uh, you know SSL, you'd have some unhappy customers right now. Yeah, and I don't know that that has happened um for sure you know I, I think most of our customers use commercial certs for you know what they do um but 
but you know, it, it's right. What what Richard was saying about selecting open source is absolutely true, mm-hmm. and I think always has been. But now it's even more critical to think, hey, you know, I grabbed this npm package uh, as a developer, mm-hmm. and because it solved my problem, it let me meet my deadline by Friday. And, you know, I, I got through the sprint. Woo! And, <laughs> um, but nobody else knows I did this. And I, right. I, as a, you know, just a regular developer, um, just committed my employer to a license without any lawyers checking it. I sure. just, even if it was an my, MIT license, it's still a commitment. Yeah, it is. That's exactly right. And, yeah. uh, and and it's not your commitment as a developer. It's your your employer that took that commitment. It's, it's their software, right? And uh, and I just tied my employer's software, you know, maybe, maybe a multi million dollar software project to uh, a component, a product. And and let's use the word product uh, yep. because these are open source products. But in in the context from a enterprise application viewpoint an open source product and a proprietary product, there is no difference. I still should do due diligence on the vendor. I should do due diligence on the product itself, make sure it's good fit and finish. And yeah. um, I have to assess whether the the uh, uh, company or community uh, is going to be around in my, in my estimation is it going to be around for the lifetime of my enterprise software, which is probably well, rolling out the are the old guy trope one more time? We were all building software for other companies. Yeah, when Visual Basic went from VBX to OCX, and a whole <laughs> lot of those vendors who made products that were in the apps that our customers wanted did not make the migration, or if they did, were completely transformed or rewritten. Where you basically have to tell them, hey, if you know, if you want the 32-bit version of this app, we have to redo all these things because the controls didn't move across. One, one of my favorite stories, uh, in, in real, is mm-hmm. we had built, and this was why I worked for a whole different company back then. It was a long time ago. Um, yeah. But, but we had built a pretty substantial, you know, hundreds of forms in, in uh, uh, VB uh, using this grid control. And, and it was VB5. And right. then VB6 came along. The vendor could not, had never sold enough of their grid control. They, they didn't have the funding to rewrite it into the VB6 model. Mm-hmm. And so this company, essentially all of their app was based on this grid control. And, um, and they were, they were quote unquote smart, right? They had bought proprietary software. Ooh, evil, right? They should have gone open source. But, but <laughs> Not actually, in, those days. in the nineties, no, Goodness. no, but, but what they yeah. did do, um, is they had in their contract, they had access to the source code via escrow. So if the vendor went away, they could still get at the source code. Nice. So it was smart and they got the source code and then realized they had zero developers that could actually update this to work in VB6. All that stuff was written in C. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Like, and, and they were going to. <laughs> and and really, you think about it, this company that uh, was in the healthcare sector, even if they had developers that were in C, which they did yeah. not, did they have the expertise and the budget 
to do what their vendor could not, which was rewrite the grid control to work in VB6. Yeah, no kidding. It just broke one company. Why do you think you're going to be fine with it? Yep, right. With no revenue stream attached to it at all. You know, it, it occurs to me that way back then when we had source code to third-party components, you know, it, our developers would think nothing of, you know, making a fix and recompiling it and putting it in the app. It, it just doesn't happen anymore. You know, most most developers that are in an enterprise using third-party tools, I don't think want to go in and muck around with the source we, and fix things. They just want to find, and especially if they have to rewrite something, they just want to find another solution. I think that would be the first item on the to-do list. Well, I mean, suppose, let, let's take a more current, yeah, and this is all hypothetical, but, right. you know, many, most organizations in the U.S. have websites that are built using Angular or React. Right. And mm -hmm. so, suppose either one of those just, the you know Google or Facebook decides yeah we're going a different direction and um, you know and so, so I mean arguably Angular did um, that right like the oh, one point one to two break was yep. huge it, it is it was a, essentially a rewrite to to migrate mm -hmm. forward and we still encounter c customers that are on Angular one and uh, yeah. have to do that migration yeah and. Uh, yeah, it's a fair you know, point. But, and so you say, no, 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 I can't afford that. I'm going to stay on Angular 1, and now I'm going to maintain Angular 1. For, yeah. Right. And it's forever. Like, forever. And that's not practical. You know? And so my point is that um, when you think about it through this lens, proprietary, open source, eh, it doesn't really matter. Mm. Right. You're, you're, it's a corporate risk thing. Realistically, there's just no way – you can't take that on. Nobody can really take that on. It makes no sense to, to, to take on. It is cheaper. I, I would bet anything if we actually really did the ROI analysis, it is cheaper to refactor your own code to a different control suite than it is to take responsibility for maintaining that control suite just for your app. It's too much code. But I do think that the, there is a difference. If, if I can riff on this just a little bit, because, yeah. um, you know, if you pick an open source project that has a vibrant community mm -hmm. um, that and you um, become part of that community, and I'll come back to that in a second, but become a regular um, contributor. Well, in one way or another, yes, right. Um, then it is fundamentally different from proprietary software where I, I either pay a one-time fee or a, a recurring license fee and yeah, that bit, I'm, but I'm beholden to that business and their business decisions. So the particular product that I'm using from uh, some vendor, it might be highly viable, but that company, that vendor might take a, a, a risk on some other tech and completely tank their business. And I'm vulnerable to that. And, uh, you know, so, uh, whereas open source tends to be much less vulnerable you know if if uh you know if if one open source project fails it's probably unlikely to bring down a whole bunch of other ones unless it's a dependency mm. yeah well we we could probably talk about that because there are some fairly famous yep. dependency breaks yes I, I'm, yes i'm thinking specifically about left pad but yeah here's the, the thing though one. that are you really going to if you're if you have enterprise software you're really going to link to somebody else's javascript library at their domain rather than 
you know, install it as a package and keep it local. I mean, that that was the problem. Well, apparently, a lot of people did. Well, people and people do for a simple reason that that's how you get the maintained version. I mean, that's an encouraged approach, right? Is that you stay linked to the project so that all of the effort of all those contributors to make that thing better, more reliable, security patched, you get the benefit of it. If you fork it, now it's your problem. But what if their Let's Encrypt key expires? Oh, dude, that's not even the hard one. But like, let's take the break and talk about LeftPad. Yeah, well, that's, that's a great story. Actually, why don't I tell the LeftPad story? But first... This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Data Lust. How do you know that your app will be supportable in production unless you're using logs in dev and QA? Try Seek for centralized logging you can host yourself anywhere, including on your development machine. Go to datalust.co slash seek. That's datalust.co slash seq to learn more. And we're back. This is Richard Campbell, my friend Carl Franklin. We're doing a little .NET Rocks with our buddy Rocky Laka, who I'm pretty sure gets a free sub at this point. This is like 20-something <laughs> shows, buddy. Like, yeah, going you back to the single punched. digits. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you guys, there you go. Give okay, me a large you, you tuna. Get the 12, you get the 12-inch, yeah, for sure. Uh, the left pad story. So this is 2016, and it's uh, a fellow named Azure Kokulu. Uh, Turkish guy living in Oakland, California, and contributed to NPM ages ago. He's a young man, right? This left pad. It's literally like 30 lines of code, okay? It's left pad. It's, it's exactly a JavaScript feature. It is. Yeah, it's not even a feature. It's a few lines of code. It's for padding strings. Right. That's all it is. But it was everywhere, right? It, because it, left pad is just a thing you need to do. And so... It was a dependency on so many different projects. And he got into a fight with NPM over a company called Kick, which happens to be a Canadian company. So he had a, a library, got nothing to do with LeftPad. He had a library also called Kick, K-I-K, uh, that was in already on NPM. And the, the corporation, which had international trademarks on the term Kick, they make a communicator. I think they're long gone now. Uh, you know, all these years later, reached out to him and said, hey, listen, you know, we're getting ready to push out the thing called Kick. You use something, you have a something on here called Kick. We kind of have the trademark to that. Like, can I convince you to change your name? And, uh, you know, being an open source believer, uh, old Azure just went, nope. And, uh, but with much more creative language, actually. <laughs> like he, was, he was sticking it to the man. And, uh, so the company reached out to NPM and said, like, we hold the trademark on this. And so NPM agreed, you know, this is a legal situation. And they then went to Azure and said, listen, like, you need to change your name on this. And he said, I can't believe you're, you're going against you. I'm deleting everything I've contributed. And the thing he, one of the things he deleted was left pad. And suddenly a lot of builds broke. I yeah. Mean, a lot of projects suddenly wouldn't compile because of like 30 lines of code. Probably worse than Y2K. Yeah. Uh, in a lot of the respects. Actual, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> Y2K was a bigger deal, but the fallout from Y2K, the actual bugs, well, not all that great. Well, because we fixed it. Yeah, right? we spent yeah. Years, a lot of effort fixing Y2K before it went bad, yeah. But I would also argue, like, I'm not saying Azure's in the wrong 
like one way or the other. Like this is a huge debate all by itself. But the bottom line, it was a punitive action. Like he took a deliberate action, you know, in his quote of, I think I have a right to delete my code. And so they, and this gets into a fundamental idea of open source, which is once you put something out there that other people are depending on, is it still your code? Mm. Well, I've always thought that the, the flaw in that story was that NPM actually allowed the deletion of packages. That's a great point, Rocky. I yes, like it that is. a lot. Yeah, you know, right. And I think uh, new, new get- that have a, at least that have a dependency. The moment you know that anyone's taken a dependency on it, because you've seen the URLs, you've seen other apps go and grab that code on a routine basis, part of a build. Isn't there an obligation there? Right, and and I think there is, I, and I think yeah. you know, NuGet took a different philosophy from day one, where they don't allow you to to delete, and the <laughs> and once it's up, it's an archive, it stays. Yep. The, you can the, deprecate, the negative, but you can't for delete. something like CSLA that's been around for going on twenty four years now. Um, you know, I was part of you know putting stuff in NuGet right from the beginning of of NuGet, and so there's a lot of clutter. <laughs> all, all the oh, yeah. alpha versions, beta versions, um, you know, old releases, every, everything. You know, the, just the amount of CSLA stuff that's out there is ridiculous. And so, on one hand, it's like, man, I wish I could go back and clean all that up. Um, but And then you're like, um, nah. Well, <laughs> it's better that I can't, right? I mean, it's... Right. Um, they, at least NuGet has now added the ability to uh, um, mark old things as obsolete and hide them. So that, right. that's a big step forward. So they don't get included in new projects, but they don't break mm-hmm. existing projects. Yep. And that, yep. that, I guess that's the that's next what we tier want. past that. Yeah. The, fir- the first tier is once people are depending on this, it never goes away. And mm-hmm. the second tier is, but make sure that people stop using it for new things. Right. Yep. That, that's very responsible in that sense. But it also means even if it's marked as deprecated, if there's a security vulnerability, right? There's one of the, like a TLS1 problem or like the WannaCry exploit, like those kinds of things. You still want to be able to patch that for exactly that reason. People are going to continue to compile against that with old code. Rather than make them fix the the project, uh, their projects as a whole or have to move to be able to say, hey, we're going to go in and patch that old code because it has this vulnerability. And then folks can recompile and be, be, you know, protected from that vulnerability. Hmm. Like that's all part of this equation too. Yeah. Well, and that's part of the value, theoretical value of open source is that mm-hmm. um, I can, I can fork Linux and fix it. Now, yep. do I, you know, do I have the ability to do that? Probably not in most cases, but yeah, d- does some big enterprise that's relying on Linux to run forty thousand servers um, can they uh, can they at least temporarily rent uh, you know hire hire somebody that can come and fix a bug in the in the short term? Yeah, probably. The, the real point here is that in real open source, after you've done that, proved it works, is it's a pull request. It should go back into the main uh, branch. Well, and there we come to the and uh, this this whole and this has been a hot topic lately, um, not just from me, but I've noticed other Twitter threads and uh, blog posts along the same vein about. Mm-hmm. And I think the open source community is maybe starting to get uh, uh, 
the, the creators are starting to get a little bit fed up with, um, you know, I wrote this thing and people, uh, companies, not people, companies are writing multi-million, multi-billion dollar pieces of software and I got nothing. Right. Like they, they didn't contribute. They don't participate in my forum. They didn't give me any money. They did, did nothing. I got nothing. Yeah. And you know, that eventually can lead to a certain level of bitterness that I think is starting to creep into at least some of the dialogues I've seen. Yeah, uh, it's definitely there. The, I mean, the issue here is there is money in open source now, but it is clearly not evenly distributed. There, you know, they, they I, th- I also see this as a byproduct of the Amazons, Googles, Microsofts, and Facebooks showing up in, in open source repository mm-hmm. and putting full-time employees into projects. That so you have you know it's got to be tough as an independent creator to have made a GitHub project that people really like when a couple of FTEs from a big company show up and start making contributions at a rate you can't possibly like you can't even accept their pull requests fast enough <laughs> because they've got you've still got a real job this has been your side hobby and suddenly there's people hammering on it in in arguably in a good way like they are contributing to it. that's what you always wanted. But they also come with an agenda. They are employees being directed to do certain things. Doesn't make it automatically nefarious, mm. but at the minimum, it's overwhelming. Right. Yep. I have never encountered that problem <laughs> <laughs> yet. Yeah. Don't jinx yourself, friend. Well, Don't jinx good, yourself. good point. Good point. But yeah. I mean, there's the politics of open source now too, right? That there are. I got to think there's a lot of enterprises using open source, but only when it comes from a Microsoft repository. I do think that's true in the Microsoft space. It's not true in the web space, though. No, in the in, in the people, real open web space. Man, in the web space, developers just grab at random NPM packages from what I can see. And right. there's almost no companies have any oversight or visibility into what's being used. In fact... For a long time, and this is less common now, but for for years, um, you know, companies are like, well, we have a policy of no open source, uh, right? And, and and yet they're hiring us to come in and, and maintain or build their website, and their website is completely obviously built almost 100 on percent on open source. Mm-hmm. Sure, it's got jQuery and it's got React in it, and so forth. Right. No, nobody told their lawyers. <laughs> yeah. Now, when I talk to bigger organizations that are consuming open source this way, they are doing like part of their build process is careful checks around things like is is what are the licenses or all of these like we don't want any copy left licenses like they have they can put restrictions. But more importantly, it's like, is it stolen code? Because that for a product that represents huge liability, you know, this chain of events where. A contributor steals code from somebody else, puts it into an open source project. It didn't get caught at that time when it got added to the open source. It gets, gets accepted as a pull request by a part-time maintainer. Then an enterprise with a developer doesn't know one way or the other and how could they, uses that in the project. That does put the company in legal jeopardy. Absolutely right. Didn't, but didn't Microsoft already put something in GitHub to check for not stolen code? But nefarious code? And so you can run something against the repos to see if there's anything that could, you know, potentially be a, a malware? And if they did, can they do it for stolen code as well? 
So there, I mean, there is a tool built into GitHub that routinely notifies you about potential security breaches and vulnerabilities on all sorts of libraries, right? That, that's yeah. a great new capability. Um, how timely it is for an intentional exploit, that's a little trickier than that. Uh, but there are also tools specifically around stolen code that, that is, that is, you know, stuff like Copyscape and, uh, that are meant for checking code like i would think if you're making a commercial product you're even concerned about your own employees taking code from other sources that yeah. might land you in in hot water legally. oh you'd have and to so, be yeah yeah it's got to be part of your build process to just be able to check that what's the product i'm thinking of is it like is it called uh, something like black duck black, black duck yeah yeah ah. right Yep. Did I just pull that out of my head? Yeah. Black Duck. But is, it is right. Yep. And they, they've got is, a, a service that does that. They've also got a really nice website where you can go, uh, like I, I use it to look at CSLA because they do some fantastic analyses of uh, open source project history and contributions. And uh, uh, they'll, they'll tell you uh, for a given project how active it is and how many, you know, it, it's... It's a it's a useful tool, uh, and that part's free, just to, to mm -hmm. right evaluate open source. And and so I th I think if I'm getting to one of the points of this particular show, it's this: if you're using open source in especially in a product, but in general, actually, part of your build process has got to be assessing the qual the quality source and integrity of the code that you're including, mm. right? From a legal perspective, yep. And you and, probably and, should and have been doing it all along, actually. Well, right, mm. right. I mean, if they, if a developer was particularly sneaky, they could be going on to GitHub, grabbing a project, and then copying and pasting that code. Like, it doesn't show as an open source project. It right. just is well, code that appeared out of nowhere. Wow, look how productive he is. And if you go down that rabbit hole, it's also the case that copy-pasting code out of Stack Overflow uh, comes with legal risks. the same hazard. Well, yep. yeah, and here's the thing. I mean... I think the cream rises to the top and the, you know, and vice versa, you know, the, the other stuff sinks to the bottom. In other words, you, that, that person who's, you know, trying to pass off other people's code as their own is going to come back to bite them sooner or later. It, it just has yeah. to, if but you don't understand the company the lines in legal jeopardy, maybe. Yeah. But see, it's, I'm not even sure it's that though, Carl, because I mean, who hasn't copied something off from Google or stack overflow? You know, it's like, oh, wow, that that solved my problem. Well, and I do that all the time because I can't f remember the syntax for how to do something. But it's not like I don't understand what it's doing, you know? Yeah, but I think from a legal perspective, it doesn't matter if you understand it or not. It's that if you copy it verbatim and you don't have a license to it, there's a certain legal vulnerability, right? Well, that that begs a question. If you put code on Stack Overflow, do you still have a legal right to it in any way? Yeah, and that's probably... And I've never actually looked at Stack Overflow's posting rules, but, uh, you know. Yeah. But that's an interesting question all by itself because now we're getting away necessarily yeah. from the open source side and just right. into this, what are you and allowed to do? I, I guess I'd rather come back to the open source thing. And, and what, one of the – so I, I recently wrote an article that got published in Forbes and then I reposted it on my blog. But it, it is uh, about what I view as responsible – use of open source and it doesn't dive into all of the aspects we've been talking about here mm -hmm. i was focused much more on the 
if you're a company that is using open source to build your websites or your software uh, of any sort, uh, which pretty much is every company now, and uh, there's an implicit contract um, that not everybody knows about, but you're, you, as soon as you use an open source project that or component, you have become part of the community, the ecosystem around that component. And whether you like it or not, you, that's, that's part of what happens. And so if you actually care about that product and, and rely on it, then it's your responsibility as a consumer of it to become an active part of the community, a supportive part, which might mean on the very high end doing software contributions, right? Which we've talked yeah. about. Um, but heck, in my case, I would be thrilled with high quality bug reports. Right. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and I mean, don't get me wrong. There are people that contribute to CSLA and, and it's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Um, but almost as fantastic as a high quality bug report. Right. And somebody that will stick with me while we try and troubleshoot their problem. Right. Um, they will actually, you put our time in and you send them, Hey, try this, that they actually could try it and give you yep. useful feedback to stay into you, fix it. But, you know, some companies have, in fact, maybe a lot of companies have, um, uh, IP, you know, part of their employment contracts with their, with their employees are IP clauses that prevent contribution to open source. I think that's quite common, uh, especially among the larger enterprises. Yeah. With the exception of the Microsofts and so forth that do yep. routinely contribute to open source. But, but um, and it, it's an interesting conflict there. It's like it is. And we so can't use like, open source because we're not contributing to it. And and so, you know, if 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 as a company you're going to say, well, my IP clause prevents that because everything an employee thinks about in their shower uh, or or in a dream, it, you know, I own it. That's fine. Then you should be contributing to the uh, open source project monetarily. Yeah. Right. If you're going to say, hey, I, I I I am preventing my employee base from contributing in 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 a tangible way. That's not a problem. I should go see if I can do a Patreon or a GitHub sponsor or, you know, or, or um, buy their consulting, buy their books, wh whatever venue it is or, or a channel. That's the word. Whatever channel the open source project has for uh, accepting revenue. I, it's my job as a, as a consumer to at least do something in that er you know, area. I did pull the Stack Overflow Terms of Service. And oh, I probably could do a whole show on this <laughs> uh, because it is an interesting question because it is licensed as a Creative Commons attribution share alike license. Okay. So unless you explicitly state copyright on code you put into Stack Overflow, which you can do, virtually nobody does. And I'm really questioning that you should, like if you're posting this while you're putting copyright on it uh, of any form. You're then, you know, under this Creative Commons license, and that's interesting. But that Creative Commons license includes things like you have to be, you should be giving attribution. So imagine I'm working on a coding problem. I search on Stack Overflow to have the to find a solution. I find the solution. I paste the code in. It works. By the terms of this license, I should include a link to the question that answered that that, that generated that code for me. In my, um, in the source, it's, in my comments, it's, yeah. it's fair. Um, I'm concerned if they if they had 
something that wouldn't allow you to use the code at all, then nobody would ask a question because well, and that's not what be, has happened. I, I know that's not what happened, but so yeah. it's, so you have to be able to use that code. But I would well, I don't mind. That's what the license that. says. You can yeah. with attribution and comparable ongoing licensing. Yeah, so you okay. can't turn around and lock the code up. And this gets back to something you said right at the beginning, Rocky, which is if a company takes an open source library and makes money from it, turns it into a closed source project, essentially, hmm. isn't that fundamentally a violation of license? It's not explicitly a violation of license. Like an MAT license is you pretty much do what you want to do. But the bottom line is we've got this kind of mindset of share alike. So the fact that you've changed the licensing terms when you close up your software, you're really defeating the spirit of the whole thing. Well, but there's a difference between the spirit and the legality, right? So Legal, yes. like the MIT license does in no way prevents me from taking your code um, that and you have licensed and I can do yeah. anything I want, including building a commercial product. But am I violating the spirit of open source? Sure. Maybe. Yeah. I won't but, get invited you know, but, to any open source parties. Yeah, but, you know, but, but if, so I as a creator chose years ago to license CSLA uh, using MIT. Right. Prior to that, I was using a modified Apache license um, or, or I don't know, it was a modified, it was a, it was a self-written license. Um, and right. which is um, own problems. And, and it was for most, people it was not a problem every now and then somebody's lawyer would look at it and go oh hey we uh, we were worried about that and i'd go well for you know for a fee i'll give you a custom license or whatever mm, right. um but that was never a revenue i i had to cover my own costs right yeah um and i did that early on because i had ideas that man maybe i'll take this commercial someday and you know after enough years went by and i realized the likelihood of success was so small. I'm like, you know, I'll just make everybody's life easier, pick a permissive license and, you know, and go forward. Recognizing that theoretically, yes, somebody could, could fork CSLA and, and try and sell it. But I already, not, not that that appears to have ever happened. Well, I already went through a business analysis on, you know, like a real one, um, yeah. trying to figure out if I could do that. And, you know, the end, mm. the, uh, the thought was actually probably not like, you know, it's, it's, I'm not going to get rich doing that. So sure. But this also ties back to like having code in escrow so that you could take ownership of it because the other organization couldn't, couldn't update it. Like if it doesn't work for you, is it going to work for anyone else? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And, and even if it did, so what? It wasn't going to work for you. Like the, the situations are different. Well, and the other thing is I got, you know, over the years I've gained a, you know, my, my not a lawyer, I'm not a lawyer, but <laughs> I have gained an, a lot of knowledge in this space, um, including the reality that even though CSLA is, is MIT licensed now, I could release CSLA, uh, pro, <laughs> yeah, right. or, you, you know what I mean? There's the, you know, change under the a, name. I, I change, change the, even keep the name the same. I can just change the license. And right. So then people well, you get into the situation that Brock and, uh, and Dominic are in with identity server. Mm -hmm. Yep. Where yep. their biggest customers 
wanted a more sophisticated license, yep. wanted to pay them for a different tier and wanted it, you know, that the open source ultimately be rendered them unsustainable. They had a, they were hitting that point where it's like, we got to stop working on this or we've yep. got to change it. So it becomes our job and we can hire some people to do more with it. Exactly. Right. And, uh, and they're, they're getting a lot of blowback. Um, I suppose from open source purists or whatever term you want to oh, yeah. use. Anybody who has yeah. never actually had this problem has very strong opinions on how it should be done. But and anybody I, who I, has had this problem goes, I get it. It's hard. Mm. You've got to do what's right for you. Yeah. Well, I think it's easy to forget that at the other end of the line, everybody's, a, we're all dealing with people and yeah. you know, people who have mortgages and kids mm -hmm. and college and retirement and uh, health Just want to be able and, to take two weeks off without the world yep. ending. Yep. Yep. Mm. And um, you know, especially this is true. It's, it's one thing if you're like Microsoft or Google or Facebook and it's like, well, you know, you, you all, you know, I, I paid a lot of money, uh, to use Azure and I continue to pay it. And here's a bug. Yeah. You, you should be fixing this. Right. Mm, yes. It's like, okay, that's a, that's a contract that exists in the commercial world. That's why I pay a lot of money to a reputable vendor. Mm -hmm. Um, but if I'm downloading your software for free, giving you nothing at any point in time. And then I start posting on your uh, support forum about how pissed off I am that there's a bug that you haven't fixed. It's like, hmm. Can't yeah, you know, this is my, this is my hobby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, know? you want back, you want back all the money you didn't pay me. I can do yeah. that too. Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah. It's, it's an interesting balance. To, and, I, and I think it's part of, if you're living in that enterprise world where you are trying to create strategies around how do we consume open source in this organization, knowing we've got a 10 plus year lifespan on software, knowing that other people have to take it on. Uh, I, I think you've hinted at this, but I, and I totally agree with you. If it's the direction you're going in, it's like, we're not paying enough attention to this. No. That to this problem space, like we have to make it part of every project that we're working on it. We understand the origins, of all its code and what our liabilities look like and what our responsibilities are to, to keep it healthy. I mean, far, far be it for me to predict the future, especially in this case, because I really don't know. There, there certainly is this rising tide of discontent among a, uh, a number of open source creators that are, yes. are realized. And I think they're, they're coming to an age where they're like, wow, my kid's going to need to go to college. <laughs> and yeah. that, you know, that costs, you know, you know, 20 or $40,000 a year or, you know, whatever. Um, well, in, in America. In a, yeah, well, <laughs> that's, yes. Um, <laughs> you know, and, but on the other hand, you know, I've been doing it now for contributing actively um, for uh, 25 or so years. And um, I guess I've never really become bitter, um, but maybe it's because my expect, you know, I, I, yeah, I don't know. Because you're I, I mean, I started CSLA. Yeah, you started CSLA before open source movement really meant anything in Microsoft. Yeah, that's in, true. In the Microsoft community, you're like you've been like, through all of the things. You're also like one of the calmest, non-bitter people I've ever met. And even when you are bitter, you're like, I don't really agree with that. You know, this is <laughs> <laughs> you're just so nice. Yeah, you're from Minnesota. You don't really have a choice. You're kind of Canadian, really. Almost Canadian. Hey, yeah. you kids yeah, on my so lawn, nice. if I give you a popsicle, will you go away? <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty funny. But I, I, I appreciate that you, 
you also haven't struggled to pay your bills. Like you've been, a, no, you've well, had a successful career all yeah. along. And that's, yeah, it's exactly, that's part of it is I got fortunate I, I, is the word I use that, um, yeah, I ended up working at Magenic and, and had uh, a lot of support from my employer to do yeah. what I was doing. Yes. And they acted as a patron and, uh, effectively. Yeah. 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 I, I'm not saying you were paid to work on CSLA, but you were given room to do so while having a full-time job. And I think you, you, how many open source projects have we seen where the principal contributors job changes and they're just no longer available? Yep. Totally. Like Absolutely. They, they right. get pulled away. Right. That, that's a normal thing to have happened. And you have the good fortune that that has never happened to you. But I have watched it, you know, with contributors to CSLA. Yes. Um, over time, you know, there are people oh, like Johnny Beckham is um, a, probably the best example because um, he was working for many years uh, at a company in Norway that used CSLA and they um, rely heavily on the rules engine and they ran into some limitations and, and uh, he had the liberty from his employer to keep, uh, you know, in, enhancing the rules engine and contributing it back. And a lot of the reason that the, the rules engine in CSLA is as fantastic as it is, is because of his work. Um, now, then he switched jobs. And, and wasn't working know, with the rules engine anymore. Yeah, you know, he and I are still friends. We still, you know, communicate on a regular basis, but he doesn't contribute very much to CSLA because that's not part of his world anymore. Yeah. And it, and that's an interesting aspect of it is like when it's he when it's his day-to-day -day work using that thing, that's a very he's then literally the domain expert. It's something he does every day. Like I would wonder how he would contribute now when it's not his work. It's it's kind of good that he pulled back as his role changed and that was no longer his focus. Right, right. I mean, I, I don't, I think it's unrealistic. And and I just picked yeah. Johnny because he's like the flagship example, but there have mm -hmm. been many people over the years that um, contributed in little or or some very big ways to CSLA uh, based on their their job requirements. And you know, things CSLA could have made their job easier. And they're like, okay, how about if we do this? And I'm like, yay, let's do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and then they switch jobs or, or, you know, whatever. And, um, you know, some of, some of these folks, I, I like Johnny and, and a couple others, I stay in touch with because we became friends through that yeah. process, which to me is one of the joys of this whole thing. Yeah, for uh, sure. You know. And, so uh, uh, I had an experience with Polly, you know, AppV Next is the curator of the Polly project. And um, the the main guy that's done most of the work sort of had some personal issues or wanted to take a break or whatever so he couldn't work on it. And some things lapsed. And um, our buddy Simon Kropp stepped up and said, hey, I noticed there's a whole bunch of things that are missing and, um, you know, some pull requests and stuff. You want me to take a look at that? I'm like, Yes. Thank you. Uh, and then, you know, he quickly just started fixing things and updating things. And everybody else was like, you go, man. And, uh, yeah, I, so I invited him to our Slack channel. He sends me a message. Hey, did you mean to invite me to all of that VNX on Slack? And I said, yep, you can stay. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, anyway, um, Hey, we're just about out of time, Rocky. And what's in your inbox? What are you working on these days? Let me guess. CSLA? Well, could you believe it? I am. Yeah. .NET um, 6 version? On, 
CSLA six, which yeah, .NET six, and uh, uh, yeah, that's and, and a bunch of other changes. There's uh, yeah. some time ago I started using semantic versioning, which uh, you know is just a tool, but it also it does enforce some nice. Um, I don't know, predictability, whatever. So basically I, I queue up all of the breaking change requests. Um, and, and so, that, you know, CSLA six is for .NET six and has a whole bunch of interesting other things going on that have oh, been cool. pending for a while, you know? Awesome. Hey, uh, this is our blazer moment. What do you think of hot reload? Oh, so much. I mean, it's, it's like night and day, isn't it? Yep. You know, and, and I know if you're a web developer, you just start laughing because you're like, well, that's how we've always done I it. I know, right? But um, it's not, that's know. not really true. Pressing F5 is not the same as his hot reload. Okay, that's, that's true. His hot reload is even better than edited continuing VB. Like, well, that's I'm where I was astonished. Well, yeah, that's most, where I was just going to go. I think was, what he's saying is yeah. most web developers are using VS Code or some other editor. And, you know, as soon as they hit uh, save, they refresh it in the browser and they see the changes. Yep. And we, yeah, you know, Blazor is bigger than that. Yeah, yeah, it's even better. And I agree with you, Richard, that that to me it feels like um the productivity level of VB, you know, three, four, five, six. Mm. Um yeah. e- even though we really don't have edit and continue per se, this is so close to that that this is really close. Well, yeah, it's yeah. it's almost fun to build to keep tinkering until you get to the point where the compiler yeah. goes, Nope. Right, <laughs> right, right. Do that. Hot, you need to properly recompile. Hot Reload is actually built on the Edit and Continue engine, and they're saying that by um, you know November, it's it's all going to be there. Everything the the Hot oh, Reload, well. the Edit and Continue, all of it. And Blazor was productive already, and now yes, it's right. like I don't know. You I mean we already had VB, right? You know, as in Blazor, like was the VB of web development. Now it's like. Just taken to another well, level of productivity. I mean, I, I have mourned the the absence of working at it and continue for yeah, what fifteen twenty years now. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah no so, kidding. Um, yeah, the level of productivity that it provides for a developer is is in my experience unparalleled. Yep. So yeah, astonishing. Keeping that dev cycle super short. Yeah, it's great stuff. It's interesting where we are. Well, we're looking forward to more CSLA and .NET 6, Rocky, and um, come back and see us again. I look forward to it. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks, man. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a